Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The actions of Saudi Arabia and the U.S. are under increased scrutiny since the Khashoggi murder. It's particularly true of the war in Yemen. Last night, Secretary of Defense James Mattis called for a ceasefire in Yemen while maintaining that he sees the Khashoggi murder and the war in Yemen as two separate things. But he said, we've admired this problem long enough about the war in Yemen. With me is Shireen Aladimi. She is assistant professor at Michigan State University, and we've talked with her before about the war in Yemen. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. Did the U.S. get mm. tough on the war in Yemen right here? Is this the U.S. pulling the plug on this thing? Well, it's not an announcement that the U.S. is going to withdraw support to the Saudi Arabians in Yemen. It is, um, in fact, a bit strange to act as a neutral party or as an observer when the U.S. is part of the Saudi-led coalition that's caused so much destruction in, in Yemen and has led to this worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And so to call on all parties to adhere to a ceasefire is, uh, I think, hypocritical coming from the U.S. government. Uh, what I would expect is an announcement that they are, in fact, withdrawing forces because the U.S. is involved in Yemen just as much as Saudi Arabia is. Is this then something else? Is this an offering an opportunity for the crown prince to rehabilitate himself, to show some kind of leadership and uh, negotiate a ceasefire? Is there a more a public relations thing going on? I actually wonder if it has something to do with the current bill in Congress, which is Congress's attempt to withdraw U.S. support from Yemen altogether. And this would be a binding resolution if it goes through. It's HCON Resolution 138, and it's co-sponsored by over 60 House members so far. There's talk, or Bernie Sanders had announced that he's going to also push through in the Senate to try to pass a similar bill. And so I'm wondering if this is Mattis and Pompeo's way of trying to deflect from what's going on in Congress and perhaps continue supporting the Saudi Arabians, you know, while pretending that they're really tough on Saudis, given what's going on. What do you think the Saudi reaction and the UAE reaction is going to be to this? It's difficult to see them withdraw. It's difficult to see them take any kind of responsibility. Um, they haven't in the past, and they've multiple times given assurances, so-called assurances, that they are abiding by humanitarian law, that they are trying to mitigate civilian casualties and so on. And in the past, Pompeo and Mattis have taken their word at face value. Again, they're partners in this coalition, so uh, it's like one member telling the other, oh, you know, we should stop, but nobody's really stopping anything. Um, I think Congress is probably the more powerful entity here to really step in and to end the war altogether. Um, I worry that this announcement coming from Madison Pompeo might just be, you know, PR move or trying to distance himself even from what's going on in Yemen, given the uh, increased attention in the media, especially around the famine that's around the corner. And, and, you know, people are already dying from this famine. So I wonder if it's a way to even distance the United States role from Yemen. Do you think that the Saudis believe that they're close to winning in Yemen and they've been getting more Sudanese forces around Hudeda and they're trying to win the war? I think they would be delusional to think that they're anywhere you know, closer to winning the war than they were three and a half years ago. They still control about the same amount of territory that they did three years ago, which isn't very much considering how many people live in Houthi controlled areas, which is about 80% of the population. I think they're really trying to push through because it would be extremely embarrassing for them to 
not succeed in Yemen, but um, they haven't succeeded. They've they've made a mess of it, and uh, they haven't been able to do anything other than cause so much destruction. But I think it would be really delusional to think that they're closer to winning. I'm talking with Shireen Aladimi. She's an assistant professor of Michigan State University. We're talking about the war in Yemen. Uh, James Mattis called for a ceasefire in 30 days in Yemen last night. Coming up in a few moments, we'll be talking about killer robots. Stay with us. I wonder if you have some thoughts about what the Houthis will think of this idea. Last night, James Mattis accused them of being the guys who don't want to come to the ceasefire and pull out of ceasefire talks. What's their reaction going to be? The Houthis see America as being a uh, leader in the war against them, and so I don't think they would take anything coming out of the State Department or um, Mattis seriously. For them, the U.S. and the Saudis are one and the same, and they're partners in this coalition, and they're invaders. And so, you know, why bother listening to any statements that they have to make? Um, You know, the U.S. can say what it wants about the Houthis not wanting to come to the table, but at the end of the day, they are part of that foreign intervention. I think if it comes from a country that's not a member of the coalition, it would hold more weight. Um, to anybody in Yemen, including the Houthis. But coming from the U.S., who's part of the coalition, I don't think it means very much. Do you think the Saudis will stop their air campaign after this? I think the only way the Saudis would stop the air campaign is if they stop receiving support from the U.S. military. They depend heavily on the U.S. military for refueling their jets, for targeting assistance. I don't think they'll stop if, so long as they're continuing to receive support from the United States and the United Kingdom. What about Iran? Does Iran look at this and say, well, we don't want it to stop. We want to stir things up, and they move to do that through the Houthis? I think Iran's role in Yemen is extremely exaggerated. I don't think they have a stake in the game here. Uh, Yes, they are allied with the Houthis, but I don't think they provide or they're even able to provide any military support given the blockade that's going on in the country by the Saudis with the help of the U.S. And so... Uh, I think Iran's, you know, thoughts on this or their position is irrelevant. Um, for Yemenis, this is a war led by Saudi Arabia and the UAE, heavily supported by the U.S. and the U.K. And the pretense is that Iran is in Yemen, but we've not seen much evidence of that. There's people who think that the Iranians want to stick it to the U.S. because the U.S. pulled out of the nuclear deal. You know, we can talk about Iran's role in Syria, but I don't think that Iran, again, has anything to do with Yemen. That's what the Saudis have been claiming since day one, I think, as a way of justifying their war in Yemen. And this is not like Syria where, you know, of course, there's no question about their presence in Syria. I wanted to ask about the humanitarian situation. Um, So many people, uh, half the population in danger of starving. There was an article in The Guardian the other day, and it was interesting. The Saudis and the UAE are big contributors to the aid package that goes to Yemen. Uh, They donate like a third of the aid that goes to Yemen. And they have certain conditions about good publicity for doing so with the United Nations. The Guardian released this agreement, Mm -hmm. talked about this agreement that they have with the UN, and they were insisting on things like articles in the New York Times and The Guardian that were supportive of the Saudis. I think the Saudis and the UAE, you know, like to play the role of this benefactor in Yemen. And 
the fact that the UN praises them. I mean, I was uh, tweeting about this a couple of days ago. I saw a tweet that was praising or thanking, you know, from UN member thanking the Saudis and the UAE for their $70 million contribution to Yemen. Well, they have caused the collapse of the Yemeni economy. People are literally starving to death. The famine is around the corner for half the population, but hundreds of thousands of people have already died because of hunger and malnutrition and diseases like cholera. And over 50,000 people have been killed in the fighting. And for the UAE and Saudi to then essentially throw pocket change at a country after they've completely destroyed it and have caused the world's worst humanitarian crisis, I think it's abhorrent. And then, of course, to then find out that it comes with strings attached. I don't think the UN should be accepting money from people like that. I think they should be restitution, of course, for what they've caused in Yemen. I think they should be taken to court for war crimes that they've committed in Yemen. But to accept these donations and then, of course, that come with uh, this condition of positive publicity is, I think, abhorrent and immoral. It makes one think about the whole media coverage getting influenced by the Saudis. Uh, There's been some discussion about the typical death count in Yemen is given as 10,000, although people think that's ridiculous and people stopped counting or can't figure out how to count or, or maybe it's just the Saudis don't want them to count the number of dead. Is there more to it than this? Is there kind of a larger hidden truth about Yemen? I mean, it's been really frustrating reading articles about Yemen since the war broke out. When they did show up, um, the articles were heavily biased and uh, essentially repeat Saudi narratives. For example, we talked about the role of Iran. And Iran is mentioned in nearly every article written about Yemen, despite the lack of evidence that they really are involved in Yemen as a party to the war. But that's the Saudi narrative, and it doesn't get questioned, and it just gets put in there as fact. Or when, you know, Saudi says we've intercepted Iranian weapons. Well, some of these weapons that they talk about are like, you know, AK-47s going out of Yemen. And they claim that these are, you know, Iranian weapons. And it doesn't get questioned. Or Saudi saying that they're defending themselves and that's why they're in Yemen. You know, that doesn't get questioned. Well, who began this war and what is really the proportionality of this war? And so I think uh, the press that Yemen has received has been really biased in Saudi's favor. And then, of course, there's the countless of times that things happen in Yemen. There are airstrikes every single day that we don't hear about. We just hear about the really major events. We don't hear about, you know, families getting killed every single day by Saudi airstrikes in various parts of Yemen. And so there's this just obfuscation of the facts and uh, misleading information that's out there. I'm talking with Shireen Aladimi. She's assistant professor at Michigan State University. We're talking about Yemen. Coming up in a few moments, we'll be talking about killer robots. Stay with us. And some observers have been looking at what the Saudis say about the Khashoggi murder and the tactics that they have used to deflect responsibility for that and then comparing it to the war on Yemen. And it seems similar. They have a similar tact. Absolutely. I mean, the Saudi spokesperson, you know, we've heard him speak and lie about Yemen for years. And so for him to say, you know, we've had nothing to do with this. Yep, that's what they used to say in Yemen, or that's what they continue to say in Yemen. When there are airstrikes that target civilians and, you know, civilians are killed, Saudis get to say, well, we didn't do that. Well, nobody else is capable of doing that kind of destruction in Yemen. The Houthis don't have an air force. Yet they're allowed to just blatantly lie and nobody questions them or they get very little questions. 
questioning and pushback. Or when the Saudis say, well, we want to investigate this crime, you know, this supposed crime, and the UN says, yeah, sure, go ahead, form your own committee. I think that's what they were expecting with the Khashoggi case as well. You know, they're saying, we'll investigate. And this time around, people were saying, no, you don't get to investigate something, you're a crime you're accused of committing. But nobody really was saying that about Yemen when they were allowed to investigate countless crimes. You know, for example, that funeral bombing, they were allowed to investigate that funeral bombing. And they, of course, continue to absolve themselves in Yemen. But the tactics are very similar. They deny, they deflect, and they ask to investigate their own crimes. I wanted to ask a question about an article I saw in BuzzFeed the other day, and it was a strange one about Yemen. It had to do with a mercenary organization that was executing people in Yemen uh, for the coalition, and they were executing people who were kind of in the equivalent of the Muslim Brotherhood in Yemen. And the person in charge of the organization seemed to be arguing that more of that would be a good idea. Um, I, I think there's a level where, you know, there's some crazy stuff going on in Yemen that we just don't really fully comprehend or know about. Yeah, let me paint a picture of what the UAE has been doing in Yemen. So we know that they're involved in the coalition along with the Saudis, but I think that their goals are much deeper than the Saudis' goals in Yemen. So the UAE is supposedly ardent enemy of the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood parties have aligned themselves with the Saudis. And so this is an interesting shift here or, you know, some tension between the Saudi-led coalition and the Uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis within that coalition. The UAE has been operating these secret prisons, and we know from AP's investigation and other investigations in Yemen that they've been operating these secret prisons in Yemen. Anybody they accuse of being part of the Muslim Brotherhood or, you know, terrorists, whatever that means to them, gets kidnapped, locked up, and tortured. And we've seen evidence of this in the UAE, these secret prison sites. And the stories of torture that come out of that are really, really horrific. That's been reported in the media and then seemingly forgotten. The UAE also, now we know, hires these mercenaries to execute members of the Islah party or anybody they accuse of being Muslim Brotherhood. And these assassinations take place very frequently in south of Yemen, which the Saudis control and the Emiratis control. And, you know, they're extrajudicial killings. And again, their role in Yemen doesn't get questioned or these human rights abuses don't get highlighted. And also we know that they've been hiring mercenaries all throughout the last three and a half years from South American countries like Colombia and from Sudan and Senegal and all these countries. And, of course, Blackwater, or whatever they're called these days, Eric Prince still runs the organization. He's based in the UAE, and he's a major contractor with the UAE in Yemen. And so I think for me that story wasn't surprising at all. It just um, sheds more light on, I think, this really nefarious role that the UAE has been playing in Yemen alongside the bombing, of course, and the starvation and the blockade. Shireen Aladimi from Michigan State University, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Yemen. And last night, uh, James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, called for a ceasefire within 30 days in Yemen. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. After the break, an expert tells us why the U.N. Secretary General recently called killer robot technology an existential threat to the human race. 
I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. ended on August 29, 1997. The survivors of the nuclear fire called the war Judgment Day. They lived only to face a new nightmare, the war against the machines. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. During his speech at the opening of the General Assembly last month, the Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez said, The weaponization of artificial intelligence is a growing concern. He called the prospect of machines with the discretion and power to take human life morally repugnant. With me is Steve Goose. He's executive director of Human Rights Watch's Arms Division, and Human Rights Watch is a founder and the coordinator of the global campaign to stop killer robots, and they are working on a ban of autonomous weapons. Thanks for joining us, Stephen Goose. Thank you. What did it mean to have the Secretary General get up there and call this one of his key concerns? And he is encouraging states to take action on artificial intelligence and weaponry. This is really important. I mean, he has before said appropriate things about the desire to preemptively prohibit uh, the development and use of fully autonomous weapons or killer robots, as we call them. But to have him put it in this context as one of the three main threats to the survival of the planet really gives you an idea of just how dangerous these things could be. And it's gotten a lot of high-profile attention. Elon Musk is a supporter of the campaign, top guys at Google, other places. What have you made of the people in tech who really want to see something done here. They clearly have some sort of vision of what this could be and and are worried. Yes. The support for a preemptive prohibition that we've received from the AI industry and from roboticists is stunning. I mean, these are the people who could make the most money off of the development of fully autonomous weapons, and yet they're saying that it's beyond the pale, shouldn't even be considered, that we should not go that way. That's because they're so invested in good AI. They think that this can really be the thing that makes the world work in future decades, and they don't want to see it spoiled by the weaponization of artificial intelligence. They feel much like they think that nuclear scientists should have felt back in the 1940s and 50s when they were developing nuclear weapons. They don't want to go down that same road. You could have a bulletin of the um, artificial intelligence weaponry there you go. magazine like uh, we do here in Chicago for the Atomic Scientists. Um, you know, it's interesting that five years ago when you started the campaign to stop killer robots, I think people probably didn't have a good idea of the possibilities of artificial intelligence and weaponry. Now I think people are getting a pretty good handle on what's possible. And there are practical things that are out there that look kind of like a weapon now or that are doing things by themselves. Can you describe what's going on out there in the field? 
Sure. Well, when we started the campaign five years ago, it was common for scientists and other experts to say that fully autonomous weapons, that is weapons that have no meaningful human control, weapons that will make their own determinations about what to target and when to pull the trigger, fully autonomous weapons were probably 40, 50 years away. Some would say closer, but some would say 40 or 50 years away. And it seems like as every year goes by, that number comes way down. So we now have an open letter that was, has been signed by oh, some 3,000 artificial intelligence experts that says it will be years, not decades, before we're able to have fully autonomous weapons present. And we're very close now. Don't think of drones because drones still have a human in the loop. There's a human who's sitting behind a joystick and a camera and is able to see what the target's going to be and makes his decision or her decision about when to fire. Uh, with fully autonomous weapons, you initiate the system and then you don't talk to it anymore. It does everything else on its own. Um, so you have a programmer who can't possibly foresee all of the scenarios that might unfold in an active battlefield uh, making determinations, not based on real-time intelligence or real-time sightings. But the future weapons may look just like a drone or they may look just like a tank or uh, an aircraft or a small aircraft. But you may also have things like swarms of tiny drones, miniature killer robots that could operate in the thousands or even tens of thousands all at once with just maybe one or two people in control of the huge swarm. Uh, it's a very frightening proposition. And there is a film that's online. People might have seen it, Slaughterbots, that did very well online, and it depicted the swarm coming after people. Uh, You dump out a garbage can full of these bot things and they come and they explode in your head and that kind of thing. Yeah. Imagine thousands of those coming here to Chicago or to New York or other big cities. It really is quite a scary thing. Some people think that it's crying wolf, but the fact is these could be a real possibility. It's one of the things that's being considered right now by the U.S. military and other militaries, the desirability of swarms. They still have to figure out how they're going to make these swarms do what they want them to do, but they're already under development. Can you run down the countries that are most opposed to a ban right now? Because it sounds like there's a lot of countries who are kind of on the bubblish, but there's some that just are outright, we're putting the brakes on this every time you go to the UN and talk about this. Most of the countries in the world uh, want to see formal negotiations take place to try to find some sort of solution to the potential dangers that these weapons would pose. Not everybody is saying ban. Some are saying maybe restrictions will work. Maybe we can use them certain places at certain times. So there's all kinds of scenarios that could play out. But most countries are saying let's start formal negotiations. But there are just a handful who are saying, no, no, let's just keep talking. Probably existing law will be okay. Existing weapons reviews, legal and technical reviews will be okay. Um, We don't need anything new to address this issue. And those countries are led by the United States and Russia, South Korea, Israel, probably China, although China's sort of talking two ways about this. Uh, They say they want to ban on use but not on development of the weapons. That's a little strange. Uh, And then a few other uh, sort of oddballs like Australia, um, who I think is just doing the U.S.'s bidding. Well, in the U.S., is there any change between the Obama administration and the Trump administration? Not yet. Uh, At the very beginning of uh, the administration, just last year, they did a review of the U.S. policy that was issued at the end of 2012. It's 10-year policy, but after five years, you're supposed to review it, and they kept it the same. Now, whether or not that might change is an open question, Uh, and the U.S. is being more aggressive at the U.N. in promoting 
the idea and talking about the potential benefits of fully autonomous weapons. So there's been a, a change in the rhetoric, at least, and that may lead to a change in policy. How does the U.S. sell something like that, the potential benefit of killer robots? Well, they talk about the benefits of technology, how um, smarter weapons are more accurate weapons. Smarter weapons can allow you to avoid civilian casualties if they're used properly. Uh, And they're saying this would be the ultimate smart weapon, uh, that you may actually save lives by having something that's more reliable, better able to make judgments on the battlefield, Uh, doesn't have to worry about um, being killed. Isn't that that like the key thing that you would think is a reason to use a killer robot is, well, there's no cost to us. We're not going to get killed. You would be more likely to use it. Exactly. The use of weapons and the resort to war much more likely. And it actually shifts the burden of the battle to civilians because you're taking the military, you know, the boots on the ground, off the ground, uh, but you're still leaving civilians there. They're going to be the targets even more than they have been in the past. I wanted to ask some questions about how it looks like with the numbers of countries. When you go to the uh, Geneva talks, how many countries are for an outright ban? How many are kind of on the bubble? How do you describe what the talks look like? Well, there's one category that is very clearly in favor of starting negotiations immediately. And it's convinced that the negotiation should lead to a preemptive ban on fully autonomous weapons. Um, We count about 27 or so uh, who have very prominently and publicly made this declaration. But the true number who support uh, a ban is really much higher than that. There are more than 100 countries that have gone on record saying that they think there should be negotiations on what they call lethal autonomous weapon systems. Laws, which is a horrible acronym for these things. I mean, the only law should be a prohibition. But they've said they want to see negotiations start in 2019, um, but that they don't want to say what the negotiations should lead to. They don't want to start the negotiations by saying how they should end. So they don't say negotiate a ban. They say negotiate a solution to the potential dangers posed by fully autonomous weapons. So most of the world is ready to take this on in in a very formal and intense way. Uh, But there are this handful of countries we mentioned earlier who are blocking it. And the idea of human control being an endorsement of what you want, is that a mollifying phrase to have, well, we want to see all weapons have human control? Is that something people can rally around? Yes, that has been the focus of uh, the last couple of meetings of the diplomats in Geneva when they've uh, come together to discuss this. There are people really circling around this notion of a requirement to have meaningful human control. Sometimes they talk about adequate human control or sufficient human control. We prefer meaningful human control over the critical combat functions. Uh, Most importantly, the decision of what to target and the decision of when to use lethal force, Uh, what to point at and when to pull the trigger. Uh, And that has become a very common rallying point now for those who are concerned about these weapons. And indeed, it's the same thing. If you have meaningful human control, then you have a prohibition. You will never develop these things. You will never feel them. You'll never use them. So we're comfortable with that. Uh, We think you could probably devise a treaty that would encompass both. 
a prohibition on weapons that do not have meaningful human control. Or you could have a positive requirement for meaning human control. So we think we've got um, most of the world convinced that these things should be banned. And we think that within a couple of years, this could happen if there's the willingness to take it on and to do it. Um, civil society has brought this issue to the fore in the form of the campaign to stop killer robots, just like civil society led the way, non-governmental organizations led the way to the ban on anti-personnel landmines, the ban on cluster munitions, and just last year, the ban on nuclear weapons. I'm talking with Steve Goose. He's executive director of Human Rights Watch's arms division, and they are a founder of the campaign to stop killer robots. The idea that there can be a ban on a technology like this, it sounds like almost anyone could pursue the technology on their own. Let's just throw out Google or any tech company. They're, they're behemoths. They're huge. They do all the tech stuff they want behind closed doors. They do all the research and development. Somebody someday could do it on a small scale. Some mom-and-pop operation could develop uh, something that could do its own shooting on its own. Is there a futility to a ban? Is there a possibility that it just won't work? There is always that possibility, certainly. Um, and it's one of the things that people worry about the most is that you will have stupid AI in a fully autonomous weapon uh, instead of being AI that possibly somehow might be able to obey the laws of war, which we don't think is going to happen. But if you don't care about the laws of war, you could build uh, a killer robot that wasn't concerned about it either and could feel that. That's why the stigmatization of the weapon and of the notion of building things where humans no longer make life and death decisions uh, on the battlefield or uh, on the streets because if killer robots come about, they're not going to just be on the battlefield. They're going to be doing police actions, border control, um, riot control. All sorts of, of missions will be uh, assigned to these things. But if you stigmatize them, then you would hope that nobody will build them, just like we stigmatized anti-personnel landmines. Even countries who haven't signed the Bayan Treaty, like the U.S. and Russia and China, don't use landmines anymore. In fact, almost no governments use landmines anymore, even though they're easy to build, cheap to build. But almost nobody uses them. Uh, among the governments, there are still non-state actors who are using them uh, way too extensively. But today we have just pretty much every year there's only one or two governments who still use landmines. And they're the pariahs. Burma and Syria are sort of the only ones who are still out there using landmines. Uh, so if you stigmatize the weapon, create a new international norm, a new standard of behavior, you have some good hope that the ban will stick as it has with other prohibited weapons. You ticked off such an interesting list of potential uses there, and some of them sound, might sound really practical to law enforcement people. You know, we're going to build a wall all along the Mexico border, but if we could just have a few robots, that would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? I mean, I understand South Korea already has some things along its border that are already automated. They're not weapons, but they are monitoring devices. Oh, they're it's weapons wild. too. No, they have sentry robots that can fire. Really? Essentially fire a machine gun. And before we started our campaign, they used to advertise them as having uh, a fully autonomous mode that ah. you could flick the switch and they would no longer be uh, in control by a human, but would be controlled by themselves using sensors to determine if somebody's trying to cross the DMZ. After the campaign was launched, that came off of their promotional material. And now they say we always have it in a mode where it's monitored by a human and a human makes the final determination oh, about tricky. whether or not the sentry robot uh, fires or not. We've seen that with some other uh, manufacturers as well. The problem is, yes, you could name some function 
that a killer robot could do well and you probably would think that's okay. But if you start developing them for certain uses, you're guaranteed they're going to be used for other things. They'll proliferate very quickly. They'll be used in ways you don't want to see them used. It's true for every single weapon that's ever been developed. You can't restrict uses in an effective way. Is there anything happening that says to you, yes, human beings in the United States of America are fired up about this now? Well, we have uh, an awful lot of support from the general public. Indeed, one of the things that we think is a powerful call for a ban is that so many people are just revulsed by the nature of these things. You know, it crosses a moral and ethical line. We sometimes call it the yuck factor. You, know, you start talking to people about this and they say, no, you're kidding. They're going to make weapons that on their own will determine life and death on the battlefield? And they just, you know, yuck. And um, as we were talking about earlier, this is particularly strong amongst the people who really know the field, the artificial intelligence, the AI experts, and the roboticists. And thousands and thousands of them have written open letters, numerous open letters now, that are calling for the preemptive ban. So we think the public is on our side. Certainly the media covers this extensively and in a very questioning way. We did a poll where two-thirds were opposed to fully autonomous weapons, and the group that was most opposed were active duty military, retired military, and military families. Huh. Very interesting. I'm talking with Stephen Goose, Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Arms Division, and there's information at the Human Rights Watch website about autonomous weapons, but you can also go to the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots website. It's campaigntostopkillerrobots.org. And there's more information about that there. And who else is in the campaign with you? You've got a coalition of organizations, and they're international. In yeah, it's, it's non-governmental organizations. We uh, started up with nine, mostly from Europe and the U.S., and now we are up to about 80 non-governmental organizations in about 40 countries. Uh, and this includes a, a wide range of different types of NGOs, several uh, Nobel Peace Laureate recipients, and it's a v- rapidly growing coalition. And uh, we think that's going to make the big difference too, that when we start uh, getting more work and capitals and uh, more and more public involvement in the issue, that it's going to put it over the top. And we think that can happen in the next year or two. Steve Goose, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the campaign to stop killer robots. Thank you. In the 21st century, a weapon will be invented like no other. This weapon will be powerful versatile and indestructible it can't be reasoned with it can't be bargained with it will feel no pity no remorse no pain no fear it will have only one purpose to return to the present and prevent the future this weapon will be called the Terminator. You're dead, honey. The Terminator. Your future is in its hands. It's 
getting very scary, very Halloween here on Worldview. After the break, we're going to hear a BBC report about a music legend who was attacked by the military. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The day the Nigerian military stormed the compound of music legend Fela Kuti, they burned down buildings and even threw his mother out a window she never recovered. For the BBC program Witness, Robin Denlow talks with one of Fela's former wives about that day. It's February the 18th, 1977, Lagos, Nigeria. And a young woman, a DJ called Laide, later to be one of Felakuti's many wives, watches in horror as the military government mount an attack on a compound belonging to the country's most celebrated and controversial musician. That fateful morning, I'm the one taking care of Fela's mother. When myself and Mama was in Mama's room and we were at the window, we saw some soldier men. They were telling the gateman that if you, refuse to, if you refuse to open that gate, you will see what will happen to you now. This, 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 that. They were, you know, they were threatening him. The Nigerian military government hated Felakuti for the way he used his music and stage shows to attack what he regarded as their corrupt regime and for the fact that he refused to take part in Festac, a high-profile festival staged in Lagos. He declared his compound to be the independent Kalakuta Republic, which he surrounded with an electric fence. So it was perhaps to be expected that the authorities would hit back. And they did so using the army. One thousand soldiers, them they come. Left, right, left, right, left, right, left. When they came back, they were like battalions. And they were trying to break the chain on the gates. That was when Fela instructed them to go and uh, electrify the gates. They now put on the... So Fela had an electric fence and he decided to, to turn on the electricity, did he? Exactly. How did the soldiers react to that? <laughs> when immediately one of them touched the wire and the thing shook him. He now told them that nobody should touch it. Nobody should touch it. The place has been electrified. So and I think they now got in touch with NEPA, that they should cut the whole area light. That's the power company. Exactly. That was when the battalions now came. 
and and how many soldiers do you think they were that attacked the, your your the they club? They were on they were uncountable. You cannot count them. Lady claims that General Obasanjo, the then Nigerian head of state, was actually present during the attack. Obasanjo and Yaradua, they came in yellow Mercedes. I saw them. I was with Fela. I was with Mama. I was with Beko. Beko is being Fela's brother, of course. And yes, what... it was when Obasanjo just gave them instruction that they should pour the petrol on the generator vehicle. That was where the fire gutted the gate and everything melted. That was where they came in and they started brutalizing everybody. It was reported at the time that several hundred soldiers took part in the attack on Falakuti's so-called Kalakuta Republic in Agaji Road, Suruleri, Lagos. All those living there ended up either in hospital or jail. A government report later concluded that the attack was conducted by unknown soldiers which would be the title of one of Fella's songs. Among those badly hurt that day was his 77-year-old mother, herself a celebrated campaigner in Nigeria. Immediately they came up. It was Mama the first of all targeted. They just carried Mama from up there and threw her down inside the pool, swimming pool. This is Felakuti's mother, Funmalayo. Exactly, Funmalayo and Sumkuti. She was thrown from the balcony to the swimming pool. And Funmalayo, of course, was a very famous lady in Nigeria, a very important lady. Oh, very, very important woman. Very, very important woman. She's the one that fought for women's liberation in Nigeria. What about you? What happened to you? Immediately they threw Mama. It was when they were trying to struggle with Fela and Beko. That was when I started running Elta Skelter. Everywhere was burning. On getting to Fela's room, there was this giant-sized freezer, deep freezer. I had to smuggle myself into it, and I locked it up. So you hid inside a freezer? Yes, I hid it inside the freezer. And were you safe? When they have taken everybody, when the, the whole house was already got burned, finished, the, the soldiers now went, came into Fela's room. I never knew they were there. So as they were trying to loot everything, you know, there are a lot of money in Fela's room. So as they were looting everything, me, I was thinking, they have gone, you know. So I just lifted my head up from the freezer just to see if they are there or not on lifting my my head up one of the soldiers face just got to mine then he just opened the freezer and said hey you that was where he just carried a big giant whiskey bottle and he just broke it on my head you know thinking that i would die there but once they saw that i'm still alive they now brought me out strip me naked. One soldier was just coming from the barracks and he just used his gun box to shoot my novel. Wow! So that was how they took us to about the barracks 
Everybody with my mabe calls, everybody was blood. Fellow's mother, Funmelayo Ransom Cutie, died in April the following year. The result, he said, of the attack. He reacted in predictable fashion with a protest that would also inspire his song, Coffin for Head of State. Fela was mad because Fela loved his mother so much. If you want to get on Fela, just go and do something to Mama. And so, in a very angry protest, he took a replica, a copy of his mother's coffin, to the army barracks, to, to Doden Barracks. Yes, we took the coffin to Obasanjo's barracks and in Doden Barracks. And what happened when you arrived at the barracks with the coffin? When we arrived at the barracks, they were trying to uh, send us back. They, they used their gun to, you know, to scare us and everything, but nobody, we, we were not afraid again. Everybody was ready to die in their neck because we, there's nothing to fall back on for us. Everything has been burnt down, no house, nowhere. But eventually they took the coffin. They never wanted to take it, but they took it. They had to take it. We forced them to take it. And by now, of course, you had married Fella. You were one of the 27 ladies he married and became his queens. Yes, I'm one of the queens. It was because of the brutality that Fella now decided he was going to marry everybody. And the 27 queens, mm. were you all friends together? You got on well with the other wives? Uh-uh. I'm very close with everybody. I'm a very good mixer. I'm very, I, I love everybody. I don't have any grudge with anybody. If I ever come to this world again, I would love to be with Fela. If, if dead people can even see, I love being with Fela, I love Fela so much. Laide Kuti, ending witness from Robin Denslow. Because we have Global Notes, our look at international music usually at this time, we thought you'd play you out with a bit more Fela Kuti today. Here is one of his hits, Water No Get Enemy. Tomo bandak 
Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about religious diversity and the American promise. Ibu Patel, founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps, is a longtime friend of the show, and he'll join me to discuss his new book, Out of Many Faiths. Also, I'll get the point of view of a Honduran American just back from Honduras on the hysteria that President Trump is creating over the asylum seekers now making their way through southern Mexico. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Galilee Abdullah. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ.